Okay, if we can start making our way to our seats, please. Good morning, good morning. Man, you guys got quiet quick. Wow, I didn't expect that. I was like, we'll tone it down for a few seconds. It's like, whoop. All right. Good morning. How am I doing? Good morning. It's good to see you on this beautiful day. Good morning and welcome all of you watching us online as well. We're so glad you're able to join us in worship this morning. Got a few announcements before we begin our time singing to the Lord. Uh, two things today specifically. Um, after the service today, the Nifty 50s and beyond, uh, those 50 and up, have an opportunity to have some fellowship at lunch and to possibly go to a concert for some. Rick and Mary Jane, Rick's over here, Evans, and Greg and Cecilia Teal, who's down here in the front, are hosting this. It'll be at Rick and Mary Jane's home immediately after the service. Um, there's some information on our website, if, but maybe not during his sermon, but maybe during you know, worship you can get on your phone and check it out. Or, but uh, you can check that out. If not, talk to them or Rick and uh, Mary Jane about uh, the wonderful time we can have some fellowship after church today over at their home. Also tonight, late afternoon, 4.30, here in the sanctuary, is our prayer rotation to uh, meet here in the sanctuary and pray. Greg and Cecilia lead that group uh, to pray for our church, anything going on in the River Region, just however the Holy Spirit leads. That's today here in the sanctuary at 4.30. Uh, three special opportunities over the next month we want to make you aware of. Next Sunday, we have an opportunity after church to hear from Pastor Kandi Nyanda from Malawi. He uh, has a relationship with Brad Polk, who's a member of our church here, and he's going to be coming to, through the United States. He's a, a pastor and teacher at the Central African Preaching Academy in Malawi. So there's going to be a missions lunch after church next week in the gymnasium. So we have an opportunity to hear from him and what God's doing in Malawi, just to be encouraged what God is doing around the world through missions. Um, be looking out on the website. Uh, we're going to have it up soon in the next couple days to be able to register for that lunch. And uh, to, it's on our news and events portion of the website, so be looking out for that. Also, we mentioned this last week, very excited for an opportunity we have as a church body to join in with the rest of the family of God here in Montgomery. Um, there's going to be a thing called the Serve Tour that's coming through Montgomery. The North American Mission Board has a Send Relief arm of their ministry uh, that we're going to be able to participate March 10th and 11th, a Friday and Saturday, with many other churches all over the River Region that weekend to serve our community and our specific project that we mentioned last week is we're going to be focusing on Capitol Heights Middle School and the needs that they have there for that weekend. Uh, details are on the website. You can just come talk to me if you're interested. I've had a couple people that have told me from last week that they want to sign up and be a part. So please uh, look at that information and see if you can participate and join us in that. Lastly, this morning, I'm going to call my lovely wife up, Nikki, uh, to make an announcement for some ladies opportunities. Okay, so there's the, yeah, there it is. Okay, so how many know God works really slow on some things and then really fast on others? So last Sunday I left church, had this idea downloaded in my brain, Sovereignty of God, Elena Taylor contacted me about something else, and she and I feel like God is leading us to lead a homemaker's workshop once a month. So it happened really fast, and because one of the topics is gardening, um, we're starting in March, and it does land on the same day as a women's ministry thing that night. That was not planned, but it was the only Saturday that her and I could coordinate to do it. And um, it actually started with raising chickens. I've always wanted to raise chickens. My husband does not. 
And so we, we probably will not be raising chickens, but I know several families in here do. And so for those who do, um, if Alana has not contacted you, she's going to be talking to you guys about this. So let me just read what this is really quick, um, and I'll keep this short. So this is an opportunity for us to share life and practical homemaking experience to help each other in our home life. What's going to happen at these workshops, encouragement, education, connection. This is not a Bible study, and it's not a you should do all these things to be an actual homemaker. Instead, it's about cultivating educational traits for our homes. So very practical. We have a lot of new families at Gateway, and therefore we have a ton of experience, resources, and knowledge that we can share with one another. If you have any of these listed, please come see me after, and we can plug you in to help us. We are not teaching every class. Um, And this is, if one of these interests you, please come and join us. It'll be a three-hour workshop. It's not for children on this one. Teenagers are welcome. And if there's a subject up there that even the guys are like, hey, I know how to raise chickens. I want to come help teach. Or I want to learn from my family how to raise chickens. I want to come learn. Um, Please know you're welcome as well. Predominantly, obviously, it's for women. But um, just know that that's an opportunity for you. Um, Okay, let's see. I think that's everything. We actually have the next 12 months planned out. So it will be once a month, second Saturday from 9 to 12. We'll probably meet somewhere over in the gym, wherever CJ tells us to meet. And I think that's it. So come to me if you have any questions. Please know we are going to do a video, Alana, Taylor, and I, um, this week. So we'll be posting it on our Facebook Gateway community group. So that will give you a lot more details about what this will entail. Thank you very much. Great opportunity for you ladies and some men. Not me. Okay. Um, all right. <laughs> I love eating chicken, but I don't want to raise it. Okay. Everybody, let's stand. Have an opportunity to worship our Lord together. I want to read this over us this morning. We're going to be reading Psalm chapter 62, verses 5 through 8, to prepare our hearts before the Lord. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. O God, rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock and my God is my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him, for God is a refuge for us. Let's worship him this morning. So 
Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed
prayer and praise the name of God to him in adoration of him. Lord, your name is the name that is above every name. Lord, what a beautiful sound it is for your people to be gathered together to sing and to praise your great name. And Lord, I pray that you would be stirring our hearts to want to praise your name, not just on Sunday mornings, but all week long as well. Lord, even as we think about the privilege we have to even know your name and to be able to praise your name, God, we are reminded that all around the world are people who never even once heard of the name of Jesus. And so even as we rejoice in the hope we have in you, we pray that you would continue to grow our heart to see your name praised among all the peoples of the world. To be turning our heart to the nations, Lord, growing us as a church in our longing to see your name praised in every corner of this earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Emily Griffin is one of our church members. So Emily, wherever you are, come on up here. Um, Emily is one of our church members, and she works with a ministry you've heard us talk about called Mescals in Kenya. And so she has a ministry update of a way we can partner with Mescals Church, but also she is doing a short-term mission trip, not to Kenya, but to an unreached part of the world. And so she's going to ask her to tell you about that so you know how to be praying for her as she travels very soon to Southeast Asia. Y'all, I may not be able to contain myself after that worship, but I will. I will try to keep it uh, keep it brief. But I did. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share with you this morning a couple of ways that you can be involved globally um, in a trip that I'm taking next week, and then also uh, a trip that Meskels is taking in April. And so uh, to start to start sooner with a trip that's next week. A few friends and I from my hometown in West Alabama are going to be traveling on Friday to a country in, uh, in Southeast Asia, and we've been there a few times before, and, you know, the best way that I could describe to you, if you have not been there, uh, is that it, obviously, it's a beautiful, beautiful country filled with beautiful image bearers of God, uh, but it is a very, very dark place. Uh, it's a very spiritually dark place spiritually oppressed place. Uh, when you arrive in that country and you get off the plane, it's almost like a physical weight just kind of comes on you. Um, it's a very hard place to, to live if you're born there. It's a hard place to live if you're a missionary that uh, is there serving there, bringing the gospel to people there um, in this Muslim majority country. And so, uh, like I said, we've been a few times and we have a relationship there with an IMB missionary. Uh, family who has been there for over 10 years. And so we've done different things as we've gone in the past, but something I'm really excited about doing this time is that we are, the, the whole goal in this team of four women that's traveling to Southeast Asia is to put on a, a women's retreat for all of the missionaries that are in that cluster in that area of Southeast Asia. And then a couple, I think, are going to be there from India, and then even some national partners are going to be able to come. And uh, we hope and we pray and we know that if this happens, it's only going to be because of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we want to be an encouragement to them. We want them to be refreshed um, by the Holy Spirit in the Word of God, having some time away to be poured into because they spend their lives pouring out. And so while we are going to get the opportunity, I know, to share the gospel while we're there with unbelievers, 
we are so excited to be there with the people who are giving their lives day in and day out um, in this very hard place uh, to be able just to come alongside them and affirm them in what they're doing and encourage them. So please, uh, we leave on Friday the 3rd, and if all goes according to plan, we'll get back on March 13th. Uh, But as the Holy Spirit brings that to your mind, just pray. Uh, Pray for that retreat. Pray for those women that are going to be there. Um, And just pray that the Holy Spirit will do his work. Um, And then uh, a little bit further down the road in April, again, many of you know I work for a ministry that's based in Kenya, and uh, it's it's an orphan care and Christian community development ministry. It does a lot of different things, but one thing that it does is providing a Christian primary school in a rural area that's very underserved. Um, It's really the only school that's like it in the area, uh, and all of the children that come there uh, are there on scholarship, they're there on sponsorship, They're hearing the word of God daily. Many of them are coming to Christ. It's a wonderful, wonderful school. And uh, the main thing for this team in April that our partners on the ground have requested for us to bring to them is books for the Mescal's Christian Academy Library. And so um, we have so many families in our church and we have so many homeschooling families in our church. So I would just ask you, if you have some books in your home, uh, pre-K through about fifth or sixth grade, Uh, that you're no longer in need of and you would like to use those books to bless um, some kids in Kenya, uh, then starting on Wednesday, all throughout the month of March, we're going to have a collection box right through these doors in between the resource center and the offices. So you can come and you can put your books there. Um, Again, uh, pre-K through about fifth or sixth grade. Um, And I've had people ask a great question of, wow, well, if these books are in English, how is that going to roll in Kenya? Uh, But They actually, as soon as kids begin going to school in Kenya, even in pre-K, they're learning English. Um, And so I would say the only book that might not be the best fit is if it's one that is directly tied to uh, American history. Um, That may not translate as well, but anything else, like if your kids would read it and enjoy it, um, then know that it's good for Mescal's Christian Academy. And so again, um, any books you have like that in your home that you'd be willing to give um, and to share with kids in Kenya, there'll be a collection box um, right in between the resource center uh, and the offices. But please be in prayer for that again when the time comes and in prayer for Southeast Asia as the Holy Spirit brings that to your mind. So thank you so much. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to lift up Emily and this team. Lord, we thank you for her heart to reach the nations with the gospel and for this group of ladies who are going to head over to be salt and light, to be your ambassadors. Lord, we pray your protection over this team, these ladies, and safe trip there and back. God, we thank you, Lord, that you're already preparing the way, that you're ordering their steps. God, we pray for wisdom and discernment of them as they're going to encourage these missionary wives and ladies that are there and that team that's already established. Lord, we just pray that there'd be encouragement, um, that they'd leave there just excited and with more vigor and energy and just knowing, God, that you've sent these ladies to them uh, to encourage them, to prepare their hearts, Lord, to reach this nation with the gospel. We're so thankful we could partner with Emily and lift her up in prayer as well, Lord, and for her ministry with Mescals. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to give these books and to help provide for these kids the opportunity to read and to learn English better for whatever you've called them to do in Kenya as well, Lord, that you have your hand on each and every one of these children. So we thank you for the opportunity to, again, to partner and to be a part of what you're doing across the world. And Lord, in that same light, we just lift up today those who are still struggling and suffering the tragedy of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. 
Lord, we know through the IMB and other mission organizations and a lot of relief workers that there's a small community of believers who are over there and they're assessing what's going on and how to best serve these communities with such devastation and death. But God, we pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would give these individuals strength and wisdom, those that you have called there to be salt and light, to bring encouragement and strength and peace and comfort and only the hope that you can bring in this devastating time for them. Pray, God, you would equip them and encourage them, strengthen them, protect and watch over them, God. Give them divine appointments with these individuals that you're leading there, Lord, to bring the hope of the gospel, the hope of your love, that you would just open up doors for them, God, to speak and to share, and that individuals from Turkey and Syria and all those others, relief workers, God, would come to saving faith, to know that there's only hope in you. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing here at Gateway. We thank you for just want to lift up today, God, specifically our senior adults. We thank you, Lord, for their lives. We thank you that you have brought them here to minister, to just impact our lives in so many ways with their experience and their wisdom and their knowledge of you and just all that you brought them through, Lord. We pray for good health and strength for each of them. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities you've given them in each of their spheres of influence with their families, with their jobs, with social settings, wherever it is, Lord, to know that you have are going to use them for great impact for the kingdom. Continue, Lord, to guide and direct their steps, strengthen them, Lord. And again, we're so grateful for those that you brought to us. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity each week to lift up, lift up our extended family here in the River Region in Montgomery. We lift up this morning, Lord, Pastor Steve Campbell and our family down at Snowden Baptist Church, just on the outskirts of town. We thank you for their ministry. I've known this brother for many years and his heart for you, Lord, and for that community of Snowden. And we just pray your blessings upon that congregation as they reach out to those in that surrounding area with the gospel and with discipleship. We pray your strength and peace upon him and his family. We pray, God, you just continue to, to bless that church and all the that they have their hands in of reaching many people in that community with, with food bank and clothes and just the gospel and all that you've called them to. We just pray you bring blessings upon them. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is so good who have blessed us immensely, God. And we thank you for the opportunity this morning to give back to you just a small portion of what you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the offering that's been given online and given today. We pray, God, you bless it for the sake of your kingdom and give the leadership wisdom on to be good stewards, God, of what you have provided here at Gateway. And Lord, we thank you so much for our shepherd. We thank you for Grady and his heart to teach and to love us, to serve us, to give his life for us, Lord, and to shepherd us well. We pray your spirit to fill him afresh this morning. As he comes to bring your word, that your spirit would speak through him, Lord. We thank you that he faithfully studies your word to bring it to us each week. Bless him, Lord, with strength and peace. And just, again, Lord, just guide and direct him this morning. We thank you that we have this time. God, I pray that each of us in here never take for granted the fact that we can meet like this, that we can gather together every Sunday morning at 1030 with the freedom and the liberties that we have to worship the Lord, to declare as we did this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you that we can do that this morning. We pray you, Holy Spirit, continue to guide and direct everything that takes place. May your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first to fourth grade, you were dismissed to kids' worship. So first to fourth graders, you're headed to kids' worship this morning. Love that fight every week, church family, of all the kids headed to learn more about the Lord and study the word together.
for all those who lead them. Why don't you find 1 Peter chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 3. When you're finding it, I want to ask you, have you ever wondered if you're going to make it? Have you ever wondered if you're going to make it? Make it through that trial or that suffering that you're in. Ever wondered if you're actually going to make it to heaven one day, to eternity in God's presence? As you've walked through hardships and difficulties, has the thought ever come to mind, will I actually get to that day when I see God face to face? And that's really our question I want us to consider today, and it's simply this. How can we be sure we will make it through hardships to eternity? In our question for today, how can we be sure we will make it through the hardships we endure to eternity? First Peter is full of reminders and reassurances to God's people that true followers of Christ will, in fact, make it. We will get through the trials of this life, knowing that God is with us, knowing that God is growing us through them, and knowing that even in the trials, God is giving us opportunities to glorify Him and to point Him to uh, point others to Him. But as followers of Christ, we find in First Peter so many reminders, so many reassurances that we will get through this journey of life in the midst of all the hardships. That we will see what Peter's told us is the promised inheritance. We will see our heavenly home. One day we will enjoy God's presence forever. We will have that day when we are free from all trials and burdens and temptations and sins and sufferings that we know that day will come. Yet the reality for us is that we so often forget that truth. We so often forget what awaits us for all eternity, especially when we're in the midst of hardships, whether they're persecutions or sufferings or trials or other difficulties. It's so easy for us to lose sight of those promises and reminders we've been seeing in 1 Peter. As we've seen already as we've been studying through this book, the temptation for us when life gets hard is to get self-focused, to turn inward and to focus just on those hardships of the here and now and to forget the glorious promises that God has for us of what awaits us. So how can we be sure we will really make it through all the hardships to eternity? And that's the question that Peter's going to answer for us and what we see today in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to warn you before we read this, this is a challenging text, challenging in terms of understanding what it is talking about. The biblical scholars say this is the most difficult text in the entire New Testament to interpret, and that is our passage to study this morning. So as we work through this text this morning, chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, I want to remind us, first of all, that this is a text primarily to give hope and suffering. As we get into some of the interpretive challenges of this text, do not lose sight of where it falls in 1 Peter. This is a text to give us hope in the suffering. This is God's word for you and for me so that we have hope when life is hard, to prepare us for suffering and hardships in life so we do not lose heart. This is not to be an academic lecture today of interpretive difficulties of 1 Peter. This is a message to anchor us and grow us and mature us in having hope even in the hardships of life. So with that in view, I want us to look for as we read this morning, how can we be sure we will make it through the hardships to eternity? So we're going to read this morning verses 18 to 20, picking up where we left off last week because it ties together. But 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 to 20, can I ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 to 20, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you even for the texts that are challenging for us because it reminds us of how big you are and how small and finite and limited we are. And so as we work through this challenging text today, I pray you give us clarity in our understanding of it. But God, even more than that, I pray that you would use your word once again to transform us, to grow us as your people, to help us see how great and glorious and powerful and sovereign and victorious you are, how needy we are for you, and how much hope we have, not because of anything in us, but because of your grace and what you have done. So turn our hearts to these truths this morning and help us this morning to delight in you as we study your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, just a quick word about the challenges of this text this morning. The verses 18 to 22 is one paragraph in Peter's writings here, and every phrase of verses 18 to 22 has been interpreted differently by different people. This is a text where people who love Jesus and are committed to the authority of Scripture and people who generally will agree on interpretation of Scripture come to some very radically different ideas of what this text means. One of the scholars I was reading over the last two weeks said, if every phrase as possible interpretations were looked at together, there's 180 different ways you could understand this text. 180 different ways. Now, don't worry. We're not going to walk through all 180 of them because even if I took a minute of that, it would be three hours and we're not doing that this morning. This is a text of which Martin Luther, the great author of the Protestant Reformation, said this. I want you to see it on the screen. This is how Martin Luther explained this text. He said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it. And that is the text that we're going to be talking about this morning, something that Martin Luther threw up his hands and goes, I have absolutely no idea, and no one does either. But this is what God has given to us, and we preach through books of the Bible because this is not a passage that we would run to otherwise, but I'm convinced it's one that we desperately need. That's why we go primarily through books of the Bible because it forces us to learn how to study texts like this. So friends, even as an aside, as we dig into this this morning, this shows you how you can do Bible study on your own as well. When you come to difficult texts, don't just pass over them. God has truth for us in them, so we stop and we pause and we dig in to see what God wants us to see. Now, friends, first of all, why is this text so difficult for us? Because the reality is when Peter wrote this, this was probably not difficult for his original readers. Remember, he was writing to a specific audience. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of dispersion, here you go, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadonia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter was writing to a specific people here. When they received this, they are probably not stumped on this text like we are. Why, friends? Because there's images and cultural references in these verses we're reading today that they would be familiar with, but us 2,000 years later are not familiar with. In particular, he was writing to people with a lot of Jewish influence. Some people say he had a pretty heavily Jewish audience he was writing to. There were some of the Jewish teachings that they are familiar with that we are not familiar with. There's references here to extra-biblical writings that they would be familiar with in their culture that we are not familiar with. So what is challenging to us most likely is not challenging to Peter's readers, but 2,000 years of separation from the culture, the Jewish writings, the extra-biblical writings that seem to inform some of this has made it more challenging for us. Hence, there are many views, many interpretations of what this verse means. People who I respect would disagree greatly with how I'm going to teach it this morning. When I pulled out my commentaries over the last two weeks studying ahead on this text, I could put a stack of people at this view and a stack of people at this view, and some people had other random views as well. People are not in agreement on this. So as I work through it this morning, I'm going to present to you how I understand this text because I believe it has much hope for us. You may have a differing interpretation of it, and that is 
Okay, I'm not going to work through all the possibilities, but I want you to see how I understand this text in light of all that we have studied because I want you to find hope in sufferings and because I want you to find how this is to strengthen your hope in Christ in the hardships of life. Now, how do we know this text is primarily about finding hope in our sufferings? And it's quite simply how it begins. Look at the beginning of verse 19 for this morning. Notice the very first phrase, in which. Have you ever started a sentence with in which? No, this is a transition that's building on what came before. Peter is not introducing a whole new thought here for us. He's building on what he has just said. And what did he just say? Go back to verse 18 that we saw last week. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And here was the thrust of last week, that he might bring us to God. So what we're looking at today is an explanation of how Christ has brought us to God, how his sufferings have made a way For you and I to know God. So what he says now in verses 19 and 20 is given to us to strengthen our confidence that we will be with God, not only now, that we have his presence now, but we will be with God forever. So what does Peter tell us to anchor us in the hope, the confidence, the assurance that we will be with God forever? Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now what in the world is that about and how is that supposed to give you and I hope in our sufferings? What I believe Peter is saying right here, and we'll unpack this in just a minute, he's simply showing us that Jesus is victorious over all evil. That Jesus is victorious over all evil. I think that's the thrust of what verse 19 is about, that Jesus is victorious over all evil. Because, friends, as we walk through the experiences of life and are faced with the pain of evil directed at us, as we deal with pains and hardships that come from just evil in the world and living in a broken world, this truth that Jesus is victorious over all evil is designed to give us hope in our sufferings. Now, I want you to see that from this text. So to try to unpack this text that Martin Luther says, I have no idea what it means, this text that has so many interpretations, I almost asked seven questions of this text this morning. I think if we can ask these seven questions, it'll help us understand what Peter is trying to tell us about what Jesus did here. So the first two questions are combined because they're related in the answer. The first two questions are, where did Jesus go and when did he go? So where did Jesus go and when did he go? Now, you may have heard this taught over the years that verse 19 teaches us that Jesus went down into hell, that between his crucifixion and his resurrection, he descended into hell. I believe that is very, very wrong and not what this text is about. Unfortunately, this is even what classic creeds like the Apostles' Creed has embraced. You may have heard this recited at different gatherings. He, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose up again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. Friends, there is nothing in this text that indicates that Jesus went into hell between his crucifixion and his resurrection. Now, let's look at that. Verse 19, notice it begins, in which he went. Now, friends, there's a very specific Greek word for descending. That is not what Peter used here. Peter uses the general Greek word to go somewhere. So this is not the word for descending. This is a word for going. So where then did Jesus go if I do not think he went into hell? And I think the answer is found in the structure of this text. In verses 18 and 19, there are three participles that explain to us how Jesus has brought us to God. Three participles that describe in a row what Jesus did that gives us salvation. The first two of them we looked at last week. Look back at verse 18 here. That he might, Christ suffered, that he might bring us to God. Number one, being put to death in the flesh. Number two, being made alive in the spirit. Now we saw last week this refers to his death and his resurrection, his crucifixion and his resurrection. So what is the third participle that follows his death and his resurrection? It's verse 19, he went. So he died, he rose, 
and he went. But where did he go? He went back to heaven. He ascended back to heaven. That's what I believe this word went means, his ascension to heaven. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it uses this exact same word in the same form in the Greek to describe where Jesus went, Acts 1, 9. And when he had said these things, as they, the disciples, were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, same exact word we just looked at from Peter here, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So the same word in the same form in Acts is used clearly of Jesus's ascension. In fact, that's what Peter shows us in verse 22, which we'll get to next week, but look ahead to verse 22 of chapter 3. Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is the exact same word from Acts chapter 1, the exact same word from verse 19. In the same form here, Jesus went, proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Jesus has went into heaven, is at the right hand of God. And all these places in Acts 1 and here in verse 22, this is a clear reference to his ascension. So go back to verse 19, in which Jesus went. The third participle, he was put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit, and he went, he ascended into heaven. So this is not a descent into hell. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This is Jesus' ascension back into heaven. So where did he go? Jesus went to heaven. When did he go back to heaven? Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us in this. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what Peter is talking about here in verse 19, go back to verse 19, Jesus in which he went. I believe this is talking about his ascension back to heaven 40 days after his resurrection. But that raises another question for us. Notice what he does here, in which he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So who did Jesus speak to around the time of his ascension? Now, there's different perspectives on this text. Some people see this as Jesus talking to people or human souls. Some people would actually interpret this text very differently than I do and say this has nothing to do about what we're talking about, but rather this is Jesus seeing the Holy Spirit in the time of Noah to preach repentance to people who had hard hearts, and that's what this is really about. I do not think that's what this has to do with. Some people go as far as say, no, no, this is Jesus going to hell, preaching a second chance for the souls in hell so they could escape hell, though they didn't believe the first time. I do not think that's at all consistent with Scripture. I believe he's actually speaking here to demons, to fallen angels. Why? Because the word spirit in Scripture, every time it's used but one, refers to fallen angels. Of the 50-plus times this word appears in the New Testament, every time it has to do with fallen angels or demons. Only once anywhere in the Bible is this word spirits used of people, and that's in Hebrews 12, and it's very clearly qualified to deal with human souls. Everywhere else you see this word, it is always about demons or falling angels. So who is Jesus addressing? He's addressing demons, these fallen angels, but not demons in general, but a very specific group of fallen angels. Look at verses 19 and 20, in which he, Jesus, went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because, this tells us why they're in prison, we'll come back to that, because they formerly did not obey, okay, all demons did not obey, that's why they're not in heaven as angels anymore, that's why they're fallen angels, there's something specific here, these are the ones who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah when the ark was being prepared. So Jesus is speaking to a group of demons, particularly from something that happened at the time of Noah. So what is this disobedience from a particular group of demons at the time of Noah? Okay, you ready for it to get really, really weird this morning now? <laughs> this story gets really weird here. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And this is a text you probably were never taught in kids' Sunday school, if I had to guess. Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Okay, 
Now, in Scripture, you have to realize the word sons of God always refers to demons, okay? The sons of God, the demons saw that human women were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. I told you, it's getting weird. It's getting more weird here. Don't worry. Job chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to see how this title, sons of God, is used in Scripture. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. That is clearly not humans here, the way Scripture uses this phrase, sons of God. These are demonic beings, and just whole sermon for another day. It reminds us that God is sovereign, Satan and demons are not. Notice that even the demons are accountable before God of what happens. He is a sovereign ruler, and they have to answer to him because he is the king. So son of God is used in Scripture for these fallen angels. So go back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, where it gets really weird here. These demons, these sons of God, saw that human women were attracted, and they took as their wives any they chose. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to have sexual relationship with these women and produced offspring. Now, unless you think I'm crazy on that, which you may already be thinking that, that's okay. Two verses later, Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, you see what happens. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These, these offspring of these demons and these women were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So as a result of these demonic beings having sexual relations with women, you have this offspring called the Nephilim. In the Hebrew, the word Nephilim literally means the fallen ones. So because of this demonic influence, humanity was corrupted in new ways. Now, I know this sounds strange and crazy. I want to remind us, Genesis records for us history, not fairy tales, not allegories, but history, just as God spoke and the world comes into being in six days, this is recording for us history and what happened in God's world. And this is a very real sin of very real demons. The book of Jude explains this in chapter 1. Well, there's only chapter one chapter in Jude. But in Jude, verses 6 and 7, you see what happens here. I believe, many scholars believe this is referring to the same thing as Genesis 6. It's referring to what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 3. Notice what Jude says. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority... But left, this, left their proper dwelling, he, Jesus, is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great end. I'll pause there. These angels are left there. Go back to verse 6 real quick, sorry. These angels have left their dwelling. They've left the spiritual realm which they occupy. And they've entered into the physical realm of mankind to do something unthinkable and unspeakable. And I believe Jude brings that out in the very next verse in verse 7. Notice what he equates the sin of these demons he says, just as, so what they did is just as, similar to Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged. So these demons did something which is similar to what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. They indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. In the Greek, it's literally pursued unnatural flesh. These demons were pursuing human flesh. They left their sphere they're supposed to be in. It serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, I told you this is getting really weird here. So their sin is so great in trying to corrupt the human lineage here that the flood comes immediately after it. Go back to Genesis chapter 6. Notice how these verses flow together. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 4 to 7, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God, the demons, came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. They were the mighty men who are of old, the men of renown. Now, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that's an understatement, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, verse 6, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to the heart. So verse 7, what does God do? 
Lord said, I will blot out man from whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Do not miss the connection that the flood comes on the heels of the sin of these demons in the time of Noah than what we're being pointed back to in this place. So, where did Jesus go? He ascended to heaven. When did he go after his resurrection? Who did he address? These demons who tried to have sexual relationships with women on earth and create another offspring. Now, as a side note, the question comes, why in the world would these demons do this? And there's speculation here, friends, so I can only tell you my speculation, which is dangerous, but I think it is fitting here for this. If you think back, Satan knew all the way back to the garden that God would prevail. The promise was made to him that the offspring of Adam and Eve would crush his head, that the Messiah would come and would crush Satan. So all throughout the scripture, Satan is trying to stop God's plan, hence the temptations of Jesus. I think the reason why the, why the demons did this is because they were trying to corrupt the seed of man by which the Messiah would come to stop redemption from happening. I can't prove that from scripture, but as I look at the big picture of scripture, why would the demons come try to have relationships with women? Because they're trying to corrupt the seed of man by which the Messiah would come to stop him from coming. This was a demonic attempt, as I understand it, to corrupt the lineage of mankind, and stop the Messiah. That is the demons who Jesus is specifically addressing. Go back to verse 19 here, in which he proclaimed, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, that leads to our fourth question. What is this prison they are in? What is this prison they are in? I do not think this is reference to hell. There are many places, many words in the Greek that can describe hell, many words in the Greek that can describe death. Peter doesn't use any of those here for us. He uses the word for a general prison. I believe this is an image for us, not of a physical place these demons are set aside, but of God's restraint over them. Think about a prison on earth. What's a prison here for? It's to stop the person from continuing the evil they were doing. So why do you put a murderer in prison? So they don't murder more people. Why do you put a rapist in prison? So they don't rape more people. A prison is to restrain evil from continuing. I believe this prison here is an image of the sovereignty of God stopping these demons' sin, obviously the time of the flood, but restraining them so this would never happen again, so they would no longer engage in this illicit activity they were doing to stop redemption. I think you see this in Jude chapter 1 verse 6 as well. We already looked at it earlier, but back to Jude 1. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, Jesus, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I believe the prison then is the restraint so this would never happen again in the rest of human history. And I believe that's consistent with the rest of Scripture. You look in Scripture, friends, Satan and demons are not sovereign beings who can do whatever they want to do. Only God is sovereign, Satan is not. Satan and demons are created beings and God is more powerful. So if you go to the book of Job, maybe we'll preach through this in one day. It's a fascinating book. If you look at the whole account of what happened to Job, God initiated the whole thing, not Satan. Satan doesn't come to God and say, hey, you need to mess with Job here. God's the one who says to Satan, hey, have you looked at Job? God is the initiator. He is the sovereign one. And so when Satan says, hey, basically, God, he only follows you because you bless him, God says, okay, you can take stuff from him, but you can't touch his life. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. If you follow the book of Job, this happens over and over. Satan can only go as far as God allows. God sets the parameters. God sets the boundaries. God is sovereign. Satan is not. The great preacher from the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, says Satan is like a mad dog on a leash. He's like a mad dog on a leash. Yes, he's devouring and hurting things, but his leash only goes as far as a sovereign God 
lets it go. I believe if we go back to our verse today, I believe that's what we're seeing here. That prison, Spurgeon might call it the leash, is God's restraint to say, I'm the sovereign king. You cannot corrupt humanity again. This will never happen again. You are in prison, not literally, but these demons are kept from ever being able to pursue doing that again. Why? Because God is stronger. He says it, everything, even the demons, have to get in line. Matthew 12 gives us a picture of this. Matthew 12, 28 and 29. Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, then indeed he may plunder the house. Now, this is a whole other sermon for a whole other day. I've probably said that several times today, and we'll say that several more. We don't bind the strong man, friends. Jesus does. This is Jesus going into the enemy's territory and binding him for his purposes. Friends, we don't have the authority to bind Satan, but Jesus does here. And I believe that's exactly what our text is about today. Jesus is putting in prison. He's restraining. He's binding the enemy from doing the things the enemy wants to do and corrupting the human line. Go back to verse 22, just past our text today for next week. And I think that's exactly what Peter is showing us. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, notice with angels, authorities, and powers, those are all words scripture uses for demonic beings, angel authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. That Jesus restrains the demons from this type of evil until the day he judges them forever. But some people might object, but doesn't he have to go to hell to do that? Well, no, he's a sovereign king. If he summons, they come. He doesn't have to go into hell to have this conversation with him. Job chapter 2 verse 1 is a glimpse of that for us. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And all the mysteries of spiritual warfare that we can think about, it's important to remember God is on the throne, he is sovereign, and so if he says to the demons, come answer, they will come trembling before the holiness of God, and they will answer. God can do what God wants to do from wherever he wants to do it. So where did Jesus go? He ascended back to heaven. When did he go? 40 days after his resurrection. Who did he address? These demons who committed this grave sin, and what is the prison they're in? It's the restraint of God so they can never do this again. Now go back to verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's our fifth question now. What did Jesus proclaim to them? What would Jesus say to these particular demons? Now, first of all, friends, this word proclaim is not the word to proclaim the good news. Often in scripture, you talk about the euangelion, proclaiming the gospel. That is not the word that is used here. That means he's not offering them forgiveness. He's not like, hey, I know you did this really bad thing, but you have a chance to become a good angel again, just come back to me. That's not the case. The testimony of scripture is that the demons are forever bound. We as humans, by God's grace, can repent and believe the demons are never given redemption like we are given. So this is not an offer to them of the good news. Rather, this word here he proclaimed is the word for heralding something or announcing something. So he's announcing something to them, what is he announcing to them? He's announcing to them his victory. This is a victory proclamation over the demons. Again, go back to verse 22. We'll get to next week. He was going into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Friends, when someone wins a war, the people who are conquered are subjected to the ruler. So if someone invades the land and takes it over, those people are now subjected to the rule of the one who wins the war. This is for us a reference that Christ is victorious. He has defeated them, and so he's proclaiming his victory over the evil forces who tried to stop redemption. So what would exactly would he say to them? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. 
But I think from the rest of Scripture, it could, we could infer from this. He's proclaiming that he is a sovereign Lord. He's proclaiming his greatness and their, their submission to him. He is perhaps proclaiming that their efforts to corrupt the human seed and stop redemption did not happen. This is around the time of his ascension. He is perhaps proclaiming the victory that what they hated to happen and wanted to not see happen has actually happened. I think most likely he's proclaiming that they are under judgment for what they did. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 gives us a glimpse of this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Again, that is not human rulers and authorities. That's a phrase in scripture that refers to demonic beings. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He stopped them. Their efforts to beat him did not succeed. And this is he put them to open shame. Again, we've talked about this before. Shame in our culture is an embarrassment. Shame in scripture is, is public judgment against them. So Jesus is judging them by triumphing over them and him. So I believe he's proclaiming a victory proclamation of judgment on them. So go back to verse 19 in light of all that. In which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That leads to our sixth question of the morning. Why would he proclaim this? He's God, he doesn't have to. Why would Jesus, after his ascension, take time to find these demons who tried to stop redemption and proclaim this to them? I think it goes back to what we were just looking at in the Colossians text. This was a public shaming, a public judgment of them. I believe he proclaimed this so that the souls in heaven would see this, the angelic beings would see this, and us now reading scripture would see this, and so we in turn would worship God for his triumphant victory over all evil. I believe he, he does this so that all those beings in heaven and us looking ahead and what, or looking back to what he's done would see how sovereign God is, how wise he is, how powerful he is, how unstoppable he is, and hence we would bow and worship before him. He does this to glorify himself. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 gives us a picture of why God does what he does so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Or two verses later in verse 14, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Everything about salvation is not about us. It's about making much of God. Our salvation is not about making much of me, making much of you. It's about making much of God. And so the demonic efforts to try to stop redemption when Jesus proclaims victory over them is because he's making much of the glory of God. So where did Jesus go? He ascended to heaven. When did he go? 40 days after his resurrection. Who did he address? These demons who committed this grave sin in the time of Noah. What is the prison they're in? This, the restraint God has put on them so they can never act that way again. What did he proclaim? Victory as the sovereign ruling king of the universe. Why did he proclaim it? So that people would worship him to show his glory. Now, last question. How does that truth, as strange as it may sound, how does that give us hope? Why is Peter telling us this? How does this give us hope? Now, remember the context. This is in a paragraph in a section about us enduring suffering in this world. So go back to verse 14 of chapter 3. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. What God is showing us in this section of 1 Peter is that God has brought us to himself in salvation. God will bring us certainly to himself for all eternity with him. And so verse 19 comes to assure us that the greatest scheme from hell in all of human history failed. That means every demonic attempt to keep you and I from being held by God will fail also, that Jesus' victory secures our salvation. We have been justified. We've been forgiven. 
We are being sanctified where we grow in godliness even through the trials. And we will one day be glorified where we're with God forever and we have resurrection bodies. And how do we know we will make it? Verse 19, because Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison and those evil spirits who tried to stop redemption from happening who still battle against us today with temptations and doubts and all those things that they throw at us. Verse 22, they are now subjected to him. Friends, that means that nothing, absolutely nothing, not even Satan himself can stop redemption and can stop us from being held by God. This is the promise that Jesus gives us in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. And this verse this week, I've been thinking of so rich in light of what we've been studying here. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. The greatest schemes from the pit of hell to cause you and I to perish will fall flat because Jesus is victorious and conquered. That means when Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand, not even all the worst demons of all of human history working together can take us out of the hand of Jesus. Verse 29, he carries on as well. My Father who's given them, that's us if we're in Christ, to me, is greater than all. He's greater than all these demonic beings. He's greater than Satan. He's greater than all the armies of hell. God is greater. They answer to him. He doesn't answer to them. Therefore, no one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hands. One of the authors I read this week summarized it so well. This author said, Believers may be called to endure the worst that anti-Christian prejudice could inflict. But even then, even as we go through the worst the world offers, we can be assured that our pagan opponents, and more importantly, the spiritual powers of evil that stand behind those pagan opponents and direct to them, those are not outside of Christ's control. Friends, let that sink in. We serve a sovereign God where even the demons have to come before him and answer for what they've done. And he can say, no more of that. Satan can come to God and say, I want to tear this person up. And God goes, only this far, I'm holding your leash. God is sovereign. Satan is not. None of the things that happen, not even the sufferings and trials we go through, are outside of the control of Christ. This, this author goes on. They were already defeated. These are the demons. Awaiting final punishment. Christ had openly triumphed over them. Here then is a real comfort and strength for a persecuted church, which took very seriously the reality and power of spiritual forces. This is the hope and the strength, friends, that nothing can prevail against God's people because God is the one holding us and nothing is outside of his, his control, that Christ himself is triumphant. So what is the hope that we have? How can we be sure even when life is hard, we're gonna get to heaven one day? And here's what I want you to see from this text. Christ's triumphant victory over all evil assures us that we certainly will be with God forever. Christ's triumphant victory over all evil assures us as his children that we will be with him forever. If you are in Christ, friends, that means that the sovereign king of the universe, the creator of all, the architect of our redemption, is the victorious one. He is the reigning one. Nothing can stop him. He is the one who called you to salvation when you were not seeking him. He is the one who is holding you now in the trials, not you holding on to him. And he is the one who has promised to bring you to glory with him, to this inheritance that Peter's been telling about. And nothing, not even the schemes of hell, can keep you from that. Not even Satan, his demons, nothing that the pagan world can do to you can stop you from receiving the inheritance that Christ has promised to you. His triumphant victory over every evil assures us that we certainly will be with God forever. Two questions for you, friends. Number one, do you really, really believe Jesus is victorious over all evil? Not just can you give the right answer, but do you know in your heart that Jesus is the reigning king and all evil is subjected to him, that he is over all and he is triumphant and therefore you have nothing to fear. Do you know in your heart that you know and you serve the reigning king who's defeated all evil? My friends, do you have hope in your hardships 
that God is holding you and that he will bring you to him forever. This is a text not to be an academic discussion. This is a text that Peter wrote to believers who were in great times of persecution and who were about to go through Nero's awful persecution. He wrote this to anchor them in truth, that even if the world turns against you because the evil forces of darkness have stirred them to to hurt you, God is holding you and you have hope in that. Friends, do you have hope knowing that God is holding you and will bring you to him forever? Friends, if not, this text is a call for you to run to Jesus to repent of your sins, to believe in him, to receive the hope he offers that you can have your sins forgiven and you can know God. But friends, if you do have that hope, you know that Christ is victorious over evil and you have hope in the hardships. This is a text that calls you to rejoice, to be filled with awe, to worship the one who is giving you this hope and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is holding you and will take you to heaven with him one day and to live as an elect exile on the way to heaven. Do you have that hope? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, even for your word and your parts of it that are challenging to us. So we know that this is a challenging text, but Lord, I pray today that our hearts will come away encouraged, knowing that you are sovereign, you are ruling, you are triumphant over all evil. And God, you will see us one day to heaven. Lord, I pray for those who are in Christ here, that their hearts today will be assured of their salvation. Their hearts will be rejoicing at the fact that you are holding them and no one can snatch them out of your hands. Lord, I pray you'll turn their hearts to worship you. And Lord, if there's anyone in here, child or adult, who's never trusted in you, would you awaken their hearts and souls today to see your greatness, to see your victory, to see your sovereignty, to see your glory, and to realize they need you. Would you turn their hearts today to want to believe in you? And I pray before the day is over, they would repent and believe and find the hope that we have in knowing you, our Redeemer. So we ask you to have your way in us this week, to take this text and remind us of your greatness and our need of you, that you might increase our worship of you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a fitting song to conclude all this, and that's a song you know well, In Christ Alone. I want you to think about the lyrics we're about to sing, because I believe it ties in with this text. We're singing, In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. Friends, can you say that with certainty this morning, that my hope is in Christ We're going to sing that what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled. Can you say this morning that Christ has stilled my fears? As we get to the third stanza of the song, we're going to sing that phrase, and as he stands in victory, since curse is lost, as we picture that this morning, what this text is about, that Christ is standing as the victorious one. And then ultimately this, this, this song we're going to sing points us back to this incredible declaration of faith in God. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or he calls me home here in the power of Christ, I will stand. Let's be a people who rejoice now in the power of Christ that has saved us and will save us. In Christ alone my hope is found and he is my light my strength my soul this cornerstone this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when fears are sealed when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here 
to not lose sight of that truth. Remember your bigness and your greatness and just to enjoy being in awe of who you are this week. Lord, stir our hearts to think about you this week and be in awe of you that we might seek your grace to live for you. We ask it for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday.